Episode 39 of the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I'm James Cohn. This is the podcast version of the movie review website Swamp Flicks. We are recording in mid-city New Orleans behind the ghost of the old rock and roll <laughs> at James's house. James. Yes. <laughs> what have you been watching lately? So, honestly, I've been kind of hitting some bad luck as far as movies. Just haven't really seen anything great in the past week, but... My roommate told me about this horror movie that came out this year called A Dark Song, which is freaking phenomenal. And uh, I think I'm going to make you watch it for our next episode, which will be like a Halloween episode. But it is so different than any other horror movie I've seen in recent memory. I really think it's one of the best, definitely best horror movies I've seen this year and maybe the past five years. Is it like the artsy-fartsy, like the witch kind of horror or... So it is, it's a little bit of that, a little bit of the martyrs, torture porn, philosophical horror. Oh, my favorite. I but but, <laughs> but I don't want to like scare you off from it because that's like a really small part of the movie. Just as a general plot, basically this woman hires this shady con man witch doctor to help her summon the spirit of her child that went missing. So they hold themselves up in this abandoned mansion, start doing all this witchcraft and basically trying to summon the demons or the spirits. And it kind of becomes a psychological horror thing where they both start going insane. And you're not sure if this is real, if anything's actually happening. And then the final act of the film is just so exhilarating and unlike like it takes it to a level that you do not see coming. And it's really, really phenomenal. And the cinematography is great. The score is great. The acting, it really is. It's like definitely worth checking out. A dark song. A dark song. I haven't heard of that. Right. Um, I didn't either. He had heard about it from a friend of his who's in the film industry. Oh, okay. And um, it, yeah, it really blew me away. Like I said, I'm going to make you watch it for the next episode. But it's worth checking out. I mean, it's timely too. It's this is about the time you start collecting like horror films to watch over the next month. So, All right, I'm glad to have one more to throw on the the fire. Speaking of horror films, I guess you saw it. Yeah, I think yeah. every person in this country saw it. Well, besides <laughs> once. me, yeah, I tried. It it's was... making a shit ton of money. It's kind of insane how much money it's making. Is this going to revitalize the horror genre? You think? Well, here's the thing. I mean, you heard me kind of making fun of like artsy fartsy like. A24 style elevated horrors that usually people usually call it that like slow burn stuff where it's all about like sound design and atmosphere and mood and stuff mm-hmm. like that it I think is mostly successful because it doesn't do any of that stuff like it's pretty strictly like a jump scare machine I described it in my review as kind of like a rotary dial like it builds this tension as if you're like dialing a rotary phone slowly and then just releases it with a jump scare and the wheel resets and then it starts dialing it back up again uh, so you have this like 10,000 page novel from Stephen King that they're condensing into this two hour long movie and it sort of like condenses all of the mythology and kids anxieties and backstories to almost like archetypal 
situations. And then you just sort of like watch them get lured in these like haunted house scenarios where like they slowly creep up on this thing, like scared about what's going to pop out of them. And then something loud pops out at them. This movie's rated R, but it feels like that like studio horror PG-13 thing that we get mm-hmm. from most like major studio horror films. But the difference is that this one's just done extremely well. It looks beautiful. It just feels efficient. You never feel like it's wasted time at all. Mm-hmm. Even if its story is like supposed to be this like really grand tale about transcendent evil and stuff like that. Instead, you get this like sort of simplified stand by me with a scary clown kind of like mechanism. But that mechanism delivers like such good horror film moments and like some really like weird imagery. It's like basic as the film feels as far as like its artistic ambitions goes. There's just this really weird attention to detail in the visual stuff that makes it like memorable. So I really liked it, but it's not the witch or the neon demon or something. It's not like trying to like elevate the art form or whatever. It's more of this like back to basics kind of, this is what a major studio horror film feels like. And this is how it can be done well. Right. I feel like with like it follows and the witch and some of those more critically acclaimed Recent horror films, it has been going a little too much into the non-commercial like mainstream, mm-hmm. which I, I like, but it's kind of nice to hear that a big studio production can still put out like a really effective horror movie. Obviously, like I'm a sucker for that kind of stuff. Like uh, When you were talking about um, A Dark Song earlier, I was thinking about, especially with the occult influence, mm-hmm. I was thinking about Black Coat's Daughter from earlier this year. And that one has this sort of, like, slow burn thing where, like, most of the tension is in the sound design. If most audiences went out to see it, they'd be, like, impatient about it getting to a point. It does not test patience. Like, it just sort of delivers over and over and over again. You don't have to, like, work for the thrill. The thrill just sort of, like, is handed to you repeatedly, almost on, like, a timer. Nice. It's, like, a late summer release. Everyone's going to see it because it's been, like, a pretty slow few weeks for wide releases. So it's just been a really, like, fun movie for people to sort of, like, wrap up the end of the summer with. Yeah, I think a lot of people remember the original, like, miniseries or whatever, which was kind of lacking. It's not good. It's it's overlong and, like, it drags. And this one doesn't drag. But they're still doing it in two parts, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess it's going to be a similar setup. I don't know if you read the original novel, but those timelines are kind of all together like jumping yeah there's like flashback structure where like the kids are adults and they go back to the town right. and they sort of like relive their memories but i guess to make for a more cohesive picture it makes sense to sort, sort of cut like that, that down but yeah is there anything else you saw yeah i mean as far as like more experimental stuff with like genre film fair i did watch colossal last night which came out early this year i probably should have seen it a lot sooner than i did yeah i wanted to see that too it was Uh, good yeah uh it's directed by nacho vigilando who also did time crimes which i know you like a lot yeah that was great this one is anne hathaway is sort of this like drunk who's going through a crisis in her life where she can no longer like she's no longer a functioning alcoholic she's now like dysfunctional alcoholic she moves back to this small town and it turns out that every time she gets drunk and blacks out and appears in this like playground where she likes to go when she's drunk there's a corresponding kaiju in Seoul, South Korea, that mimics her exact motions and, like, crushes people what? while she's just stumbling around. Oh, that's such a cool premise. Uh, and the fun of the movie is watching the mystery of that premise unfold. Like, why this spot? Why this exact time of day? 
why her? So there is an explanation yes. there. Okay. And I didn't quite connect with the alcoholism themes of the movie as strongly as I would like to. Because it goes to some really dark places. And if I was more on the line for the emotional payoff, I would have enjoyed the movie a whole lot more. And I do appreciate that it does go to like some really dark addiction places. But the mystery of like what the metaphor is and like why it happened mm-hmm. is so entertaining and it's really fun to watch her sort of unravel that mystery herself cool um, and it also features a really brutal like bully role from Jason Sudeikis who we're actually going to be talking about later in this episode so it was really good to see like him sort of undo his like affable nice guy persona from Saturday Night Live type movies and Anne Hathaway undo her, like, perfect, every-hair-in-place, uh, mm-hmm. A-type personality fr- that she has a stigma from, probably all the way back to Princess Diaries. Uh, she plays more of, like, a recluse, like, can't-get-her-life-together, you know, relatable mess of a person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they both bounce off of each other really well. And they, like I said earlier, they take it to some really dark places that I, I appreciated. And kind of like Time Crimes, it's like a movie that, like, you really want to see what happens next. Right, you're invested in the answers. It's not like it's an outlandish premise that once you get a hold of it, it's like, oh, I get it now. Uh, It's it's more like there's layers to the mystery of it. This is a really compelling movie. Cool, yeah, I I definitely want to check that out. And I also saw Girls Trip. Oh, man, how was it? It's really fun. I love those kind of movies. I think I would totally dig it. I just missed it when it was in the theaters. Yeah, you've been on kind of a rom-com kick lately. Right, I wanted to see it. Yeah. It appealed to me. This one's fun because it feels kind of like a schmaltzy rom-com. Like, half of it has this, like, Hallmark card, like, messaging to Mm -hmm. it. But... The romance is, like, not the main draw. Like, it's more about these four middle-aged women going to Essence Fest in New Orleans. And it's about their, like, sisterhood and, like, what it means to become an adult and still hold on to these relationships. And the difference between your public persona and, like, your private, like, inner struggle and, like, trying to maintain appearances about certain types of stuff. But really, the movie is this, like, raunchy, go-for-broke comedy that has these, like, almost Pink Flamingos-type moments with, like, bodily fluids and, like, dick stuff. And Yeah, I... Uh, Tiffany Haddish is, like, sort of the breakout star from it. Even though, like, Queen Latifah and Jay Pickett-Smith and I think Regina Hall... Is she the one in the in the trailer that she's, like, going across Bourbon Street and she urinates yeah. on herself? Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, that gag goes on way longer than you would think. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, she's also the one in the trailer with the booty hole uh, punchline mm-hmm. that everyone cracks up at every time you hear it. And she really does, like, steal the movie away from, like, three other people who were, like, uber famous mm-hmm. uh, before they got there. Um, and apparently she does stand-up, too. There's, like, Tiffany Haddish stand-up specials you could watch. But I, I guess I was a little distracted by certain, like, New Orleans-specific details from the movie, too, though. Like, they're at Essence Fest, and it's, like, super easy for them to just, like, hail a cab out of nowhere. Or, like, well, <laughs> uh, they'll pop into, like, the carousel bar at the Monteleone, and it's, like... You know, not crowded, and they can you just don't have walk. to wait for fifteen minutes for a drink. Yeah, and... uh, they just sort of like have an easy time about navigating the city. Also, they'll down like two or three hand grenades from like Tropical Isle, like it's nothing, and then just sort of like talk in like non-slurred speech. <laughs> and it's like you can't finish one of those without feeling hungover before you even get to the bottom of it. Like <laughs> it's true. Also, Tiffany Haddish has her like morning coffee at Tropical Isle, like at the Daiquiri Bar, and it's like, what the fuck? Like, what human being has ever had their morning cup of Joe <laughs> at like this? That's like, how you know you've gone like yeah. too far. That's it's a really though. fun, like, bifurcated movie. Like, it's half this, like, schmaltzy Hallmark 
movie about like the power of true friendship and half this like go for broke raunchy Farley Brothers style comedy. It really does go for like gross out moments. That makes me want to see it more. Yeah, it's really fun. And today we're actually going to be talking about like a lot of rom-coms. Kind of the rom-com episode. I don't know if we're like clearing our plate before Halloween stuff starts or what, but yeah, get all the romance stuff out the way before we go into yeah. ultra violence. Well, they're also like all female centric films, and they're also all four movies directed by women, which I don't think we've ever done on this show before. Like, oh, really? I didn't, I wasn't even yeah. aware of that. I, it kind of happened organically, but I'm happy that we finally got around to it before we hit the forty mark next episode. <laughs> like, cool. It's kind of sad that we didn't do this before, but yeah, that's um, great. Yeah, and all that's coming up to you. Right now. Once I come to the realization that I'm with the wrong girl, mm-hmm. I don't know how to end it. So you sabotage it by sleeping with other people? Mm, exactly. Yeah. Obviously, they get upset, but then comes the big old rigmarole of like, you're afraid to commit. And it's like, no, I just don't want to commit to you. But I can't say that. That's like mean on top of mean. You know, it's, oh, no, 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 it's not you, it's me. Mm-hmm. I don't like you. You know, like that. Yeah, that's harsh. That's harsh, right? You can't say that. So instead, I'd rather just say something like, I fucked your sister. Much better. It's honest. You have to fuck the sister in order for it to work. It's like I'd rather... Be the bad guy than tell the truth. See? You get it. Oh, yeah, but I'm psychotic. And now it's time for our Movie of the Minute segment. This is where hosts of the show alternate recommending films to each other. James, like I said earlier, has been on this kind of like rom-com kick lately. And he suggested a sort of rom-com theme for the main segment of the show, this episode. So I was trying to think of a few movies that have been pushing the like rom-com formula forward recently. Um, And there's stuff like, you know... Wetlands was like this really gross out rom com and obvious child. Obvious child. Another one I'd put up there. Uh, appropriate behavior, but one of the names that was coming to me too was just Leslie Headland. She did uh, that movie Bachelorette a few years ago, which sort of looks like a rom com from the outside and is actually this really dark, really dark. I, I really enjoyed that one. Yeah. I didn't know that she directed this as well. Yeah, and she also directed this movie called Sleeping with Other People, which we're going to be talking about for this segment. I made James watch it for the first time. Mm-hmm. This stars Jason Sudeikis, who we were also talking about earlier. He is a sex addict, and he falls in love with the girl he lost his virginity to in college, uh, and she is a love addict, played by Allison Brie. So you watch these, in a flashback, these two actors who are too old to be playing college students. That was Yeah, that was kind of funny. Like, yeah. you're obviously in your 30s playing a 19-year-old. And it was also funny that we're getting old enough so that uh, when people go back to film a college scene to, like, set the mood, it's, like, set in the time that we, we went to college. So, like, he's wearing, like, a Jurassic 5 t-shirt and, like... Right, that uh, um, made me feel really old. Yeah, we're getting old. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, this movie, Sleeping With Other People, the thing I like about it a lot is that it is a great movie first and kind of like a rom-com second. It does follow the beats of a rom-com, but it has these adult, like, smart themes running through it that a lot of, like, wish-fulfillment-style rom-coms don't really have. Like, Mm -hmm. it's more honest about the vulnerability of, like, falling in love with someone. We go to that flashback where the two main characters lose their virginity to each other, and then we flash forward to where they're adults, and their lives are just fucked. Like, they're both at the end of these sort of long-term relationships, uh, Jason Sudeikis is arguing with his girlfriend in traffic because he slept with her best friend, and she physically pushes him into a cab to try <laughs> to kill him. And he's kind of an, an asshole. On top of being like a sex addict, he's kind of just like an overconfident dick. And then we also get Allison Brie over dinner with her boyfriend is 
confessing to him that she's been sleeping with someone else for like months. Which that scene caused me so much anxiety because she kept saying, don't interrupt me. And as she's trying to tell him what's going on, he just keeps interrupting. And like it actually, I was like cringing so hard. I was like, dude, just shut the hell up. Yeah, like it's so awkward. It's it's definitely like a comedy of like discomfort um, mm-hmm. in that moment. It reminded me a lot of the opening of Happiness where like John Lovitz is giving someone gifts and they're breaking up with him and he like won't take it lightly. Right. But in this case, you have her like confessing to her boyfriend like, I'm a love addict. And he goes, you might as well face it. You're addicted to love. <laughs> She's like, this is not funny. Like, I'm going through something here. Oh, man. So they both go to a meeting, like a sex addict anonymous meeting, where Billy Eichner is sort of like conducting like the AA style thing where he's doing his like confession about mm-hmm. all the people he used to pick up on Craigslist. They meet again, and they decide that despite having the same chemistry they had when they first slept with each other, they're just going to be friends this time. And they sort of help each other through these different relationships that spring up and make a commitment not to sleep with each other. And it's kind of weird from the audience standpoint. You both want them to get together because they're kind of perfect for each other. But then you also realize like it's for the best. That they don't fuck. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Because that would just ruin everything, and that... That dynamic, like, they even have a part where they come up with a safe word for if things are getting too heated, they come up with mousetrap. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and just that dynamic of this obvious, like, really thick sexual tension, and they're both aware of it, and they're consciously making an effort to put a stop to it, to not go there. Like, as an audience viewing that, you just, it makes you want them to get together so much worse, because you just feel that, like, tension. Yeah. And that, that is one thing with Sudeikis and Alison Brie. I think a lot of what makes a rom-com work is if the leads have that innate chemistry. And the ones that don't work, it's always because you don't really want to see those characters get together. But in this movie, they really had a strong chemistry where I was rooting for them the whole time. I was like, y'all, you would be so good for each other, but this is smart. But please don't fuck immediately. <laughs> right. and Because and so it's like an addiction narrative on top of like a love narrative too, right? Totally. And they both had their issues and it's kind of nice to see them help each other through their problems. And then after they both kind of worked their shit out, then it's like, oh, okay, now yeah. we can be available for each other. Did you watch Love on TV, the Judd Apatow show with Gillian Jacobs and Paul Rust? No, Um, no, I haven't seen that. It's got kind of a similar arc where it's like, it teases like a rom-com setup where you're like, oh, this is the type of show where you're going to want the two leads to get together and for whatever reason they can't. But really, the longer the show goes on, you get to see like how much work they need to do on themselves before they could be in a real relationship. Whenever they do like start to go closer to like a romantic pairing, you're like, no, no, this is bad for both of you. Mm -hmm. Um, And this one is different in that it just it's a little sweeter. They do improve their situations as time goes on. They start off in a really bad place and they gradually like heal each other and help each other with their addictions. Which you don't see in a lot of traditional rom-coms. They never really go into that. It's always just like, oh, this person is kind of sad and lonely and oh, now this person's in my life that I fall in love with and they're going to make me complete without ever going into... Like, you know, you got to really work on your own shit before you can be good in a relationship. Yeah, it's, like, irresponsible to, like, engage someone else in, like, a long-term relationship if you aren't in a good place, you know? Totally. Um, so just from the perspective of, like, 
having watched a few sort of mainstream rom-coms in the past few months, wh- what are your feelings on what this movie does to the genre? And like, how did you feel about it overall? Like, did you really enjoy it? Or I really enjoyed it. Like I said, I would put it up there with Obvious Child and um, a few others as like this new crop of like romantic comedies that are coming out that are much more open about sex. Like that's something I really liked about this one was how sexually like honest it was and like the scene where he's teaching her how to masturbate and stuff like it's actually sexy like right and i was getting se- turned on i was like whoa and then you <laughs> see them like getting turned on by him explaining this yeah he it demonstrates in like an empty like juice bottle like how to finger herself and then they she says the safe word yeah basically like all right let's stop this before <laughs> uh, another thing i really liked about it is it reminded me a lot of when harry met sally in some ways of just like that tension where you know something's there and you know there's got to be some payoff on at the end, but it just kind of keeps getting pushed further and further back. Like they get into other relationships, they kind of help help each other out. And then at the very end, you finally get that, you know, like, ah, oh, good, they're finally together. But it was sort of like when Harry met Sally, but they're both assholes and really <laughs> messed up people. Yeah. Um, I mean, she's more of, like, a vulnerable type of addict. I guess because of his sex addiction, he is more in, like, an abusive, like, bully role where, like, he has almost, like, a sociopathy where, like, he doesn't care what sex does to other people. I mean, when we first introduced him with his girlfriend, like, she throws him in the traffic and he's like, why are we fighting in the middle of the street? And she goes, because I hope we fucking die. So his addiction has more of, like, a selfish streak to it. Um, She is more in, like, this bottom of the barrel like suicidal thing where she has like panic attacks um Mm -hmm. because she's in love with this soon to be married man played by adam scott who's a a very strange monster yeah very strange role for him too just with his pencil thin mustache and the way his hair is he just looks like a creep i've never seen him in something that made him that unlikable Uh, also in bachelorette by the same director he was an unlikable oh that's true yeah yeah um but yeah like whenever he feeds her addiction and like texts her you can see it physically in her body like hits her like heroin like she's like oh he paid attention to me Mm -hmm. um so i feel like her addiction stuff like just hits a lot harder but that part is important though like for them to be broken people Mm -hmm. because the rom-coms we've been mentioning like obvious child i guess big sick from earlier this year being given to they are following in the judd apatow tradition that was like probably about a decade ago it hit its peak where, like, having a big cast with a lot of improv is, like, part of the humor. And it was sort of like a just sort of more laid-back rom-com. Um, and this one does have, like, a shit ton of extra stars. Like, okay, Adam Scott, Billy Eigner, um, Jason Manzukis, Natasha Leone, Amanda Peet is in it as well. Mm-hmm. So it does have like, this sort of, like, overstuffed cast with this, like, casual atmosphere. It probably does have a lot of improv. But I feel like the problems that the people are suffering is more than just, like, oh, we're getting old. It's hard to figure this stuff out. It's, like, a lot darker. And that Adam well, Scott stuff is really fucked up. And also, I find that what I really liked about this film was the side characters are there to serve the plot. And not for just, like, jokes or whatever. Like, his best friend who is married and has a wife, but they're, like, very open and uh able to communicate with each other and the amanda p character is boss who he's lusting after like they all serve the central like romance or like play off of it in a certain way to have like some sort of counterpoint so it's it never just feels like oh we got some funny people together and like they said some funny lines that we edited into the movie it all seems like it has a purpose 
And also, as far as with the actors, I honestly, I'm not a huge Jason Sudeikis fan or Alison Brie for that. I love Alison Brie. She was okay in, in Glow and she was okay in Community. She's never really been a, I've never been a huge fan. I think this was the movie that I fell in love with her in, but. Yeah, I was going to say this is the best thing I've seen her in when she, she's still embodying that like very vulnerable kind of naive persona that she's really good at. But with this character in particular, it really works for her. And yeah, for two actors that I'm not huge fans of generally, they both were phenomenal in this movie. And like I said, from the get-go, I felt the chemistry between them and just really wanted to see them end up together. Yeah. Yeah, I love the sequence where they take Molly and go to a kid's birthday party. And she's like teaching the kids how to dance and... She kind of loses herself in the movement of it a little bit too much. And what does she say? Like, this is the first time I've accepted my body... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but yeah they have like real chemistry in those scenes and it's not just like a pure lust or something like that like they're kind of protective of each other and they're they get jealous of each other i think the line they use is like we act like a couple but we aren't one i'd like that conflicts like that uh also with amanda pete he like accidentally says allison Bree's name during sex and with conflicts like that you usually would expect this sort of like blow up or like someone to drop the subject, but instead they like linger on it and, and like they just talk about it. Whenever he has sex with Amanda Pete and she's like, "Oh, you said someone else's name," she follows that up with, "Do you want to talk about it?" And he says, "Yes," and they do. And it's just like a really nice like it feels real in a weird way. And it's just weird like poking around on Letterbox that like friends I have that have watched this and reviewed it before. A lot of people are like, "Oh, it's not as dark as Bachelorette," or it's like a light fluff with funny people in it. And I felt like it was much more adult than that. Like, yeah, like I said, the way it deals with relationships in like the modern world of just like hooking up and the texting thing, Mm -hmm. and yeah, there's like long texting montages, which I feel like is kind of part of modern rom coms in general. It has to be. That's such a big part of the dating culture now. So to have all all that in there, I don't know. It it felt sort of cutting edge in in that way. I mean, but, yeah, like that breakup scene we were talking about earlier, like the fact that I can reference John Lovitz and happiness and have it not be an overreach, like it really does feel that awkward and dark. I, it is dark. They're Like we said before, they're both really messed up people. And I think the temptation for some filmmakers would have been to just be like, oh, well, they're messed up and they're good for each other. So they'll solve each other's problems by getting together. And that's not where this movie goes. It's more like they're being really good friends to each other and helping them grow as people. And then once they've grown, they can get together. And that's like so refreshing that's, to see. That's one of the, like the climactic lines is he, one of them says to the other, uh, thank you for teaching me how to love someone. That's that hits like pretty hard. Like it's not just light, but yeah. okay. So would you recommend this both to like a film nerd friend and to your mom? I don't know if an older crowd would really understand some of the stuff in there, like it does feel for kind of a younger crowd, like our age and, and below, I feel like our parents really, they're not a part of that scene of dating where like you have more open relationships or just like people you hook up with or seeing multiple people. At the same, I don't know. It just feels like modern in a way that I don't, I don't know if our parents would quite, but it has it. that like rom-com structure it does have the, the structure that we're used to. But the content is more for people in their 40s and younger. I think that's 
accurate. Well, I'm glad you liked it. I, I don't know if I would... I, I'm bucking against people saying it's not as dark as Bachelorette, which is probably true. And I might hold Bachelorette up as like a higher form of art <laughs> just because that was the first one i saw and it was like such a refreshingly mm-hmm. like punishing film um but i think this movie is like great i really want to see more leslie headland like work i think she only has one other film that i haven't seen yet but did she write it as well i think or? so yeah because that's one thing that blew me away was the dialogue that flirtatious dialogue between the two main characters was so good i was watching i was like damn like why can't i be that quick-witted, you know what I mean? Like, and that that's really when the best writing in romantic comedies when you just kind of wish, like, oh, I wish I could say that in the moment. And there's lots of stuff like that. Like, Jason Sudeikis is very clever and always has, like, the cool, funny thing to say. And so that, that dialogue was really fun to follow. I love the uh, Natasha Leone delivers my favorite line in the movie. She's like, in your particular case, I think you should fuck that sex addict. <laughs> this would usually be very bad advice. Right. But in your case, I think you should fuck this guy. Definitely. And I like that she's allowed to pop in and out. It's just sort of like the Greek chorus. Uh, she's really funny. My, Jason honestly, my, um, you'll have to tell me the actor's name again, but his friend. Jason Manzukis. Manzukis. Um, yeah. He is so funny, dude. He's usually, like, a wild man. Like, he usually plays, like, the drugged-out monster, party monster uh-huh. id character. But in this movie, he's, like, very sweet and just, like, stop hitting on all my friends while they're, like, bringing their kids to my kid's right. birthday party. Him like, explaining how, like, him showing up single to his kid's birthday would ruin the whole thing was hilarious. Yeah. It's like a chain reaction. But, yeah, no, I, I really enjoyed it, dude. Like, like I said, I... I I'd put it in the upper echelon of modern romantic comedies. I really enjoyed it. Good. Hey, Bridge. How's your love life? Oh. <laughs> Still going out without publishing, Charlie? Uh, no, no. Mm. Never dip your nib in the office ink. <laughs> right. <laughs> you really ought to hurry up and get sprogged up, you know, old girl. Times are running out. Tick tock. Yes, yes. Uh, tell me, is it one in four marriages that ends in divorce now, or one in three? One in three. Seriously, though. Offices full of single girls in their thirties. Fine physical specimens, but they just can't seem to hold down a chap. Yes, why is it there are so many unmarried women in their 30s these days, Bridget? (laughs) Well, I don't know. (laughs) Suppose it doesn't help that underneath our clothes, our entire bodies are covered in scales. (laughs) So a subject that's been coming up a lot when I've been asking you what you've been watching lately is Bridget Jones. (laughs) I uh, don't know how that happened. You watched all three of her movies, um, the character, in the last few months. Yeah. Uh, and I was kind of surprised just because when I saw the trailer for the new movie with her, I thought it looked absolutely awful. And it kind of made me retroactively think that the Bridget Jones franchise was just like trash. That's sort of how I felt. And then and that's kind of why I thought it was it'd be interesting to, to have you watch because I had these preconceived notions about the Bridget Jones series and like it's not for me. Like even though I like rom coms, there was something about it that seemed like just not 
in my like stratosphere or whatever. And then I gave it a chance. I watched that first one and I was like, what? This is super enjoyable. Like yeah. how, how was I sleeping on this the whole time? And then I pretty much watched all three in like a day or two. And just, I went away from it like, that's a good franchise. Like, you know, and we'll get into the specifics about each movie, but each one feels like distinct and not exactly the same. Like they're all slightly different, but kind of the same. They go back to similar punchlines or whatever. But I just, after watching them all in a brief period, I went away from it like, that's a really good rom-com franchise that I slept on for a long time and so i was trying to spread the word i feel like rom-com franchise isn't even really a term you hear often like usually the movies don't go past one right because you get that initial like oh well they're together now happy ending and so bridget jones sort of plays around with that where prince charming kind of goes in and out of her life Mm -hmm. with like each film so that that's one thing i thought was refreshing too and also i think my favorite thing about the series is how screwball and like kind of slapstick, like the physical comedy aspect of it are some of the funniest moments. That's really refreshing too. I think a lot of rom-coms get their humor through like dialogue, obviously, but this was more Renee Zellweger as Bridget Jones just getting into these ridiculous situations. And a lot of time the physical comedy was like the funniest part. It's kind of like uh, the death at a funeral version of screwball too, where like, She's supposed to be keeping up, like, appearances of, like, having her shit together in these, like, sort of, like, stuffy situations and just being terrible at it. Right. And there's, like, tension in that, like, everyone is putting on a good face and everyone's seeming prim and proper where she is more of, like, a relatable goofball character that we see ourselves in as she embarrasses herself. And I think that's where the Britishness of the series comes in is that, like, really posh like exterior but good breeding (laughs) right but she's like not about that she like she's just smoking cigarettes and drinking too much wine and saying the wrong thing always and like that was like refreshing too yeah our other co-host Brittany said that this is her favorite fictional character which i first like kind of like scoffed at a little bit i'm like really like this series and i don't know i get it now like I, i i get it too i do find bridget jones a lovable relatable goofball she's irresistible like renee zellweger too it's just just so cute and like just gets herself into these situations i don't know i i definitely see where britney's coming from so had you seen the original film bridget jones's diary before this recent Mm -mm. this is your first time yeah i hadn't i haven't seen any of the movies until like the past few months and it was just on a whim that's something i've been doing is just sort of stuff that i kind of slept on back in the day because i thought it wasn't for me i'm like yeah let me just check this out like who knows and this one was a welcome surprise so i had seen this one in high school um oh really it came out in 2001 i was like 14 and my dad has this like sort of undiscerning taste when it comes to what to rent i would just turn over to him in the middle of a movie and just be me and him in the house and it's like why are we watching like sisterhood of the traveling pants or something (laughs) It's like, who could this possibly be for in this, like, social situation? But he kind of throws on movies like someone, like, dialing the radio or something. Like, mm-hmm. just doesn't really pay attention to what's on. So I actually remember liking the first one pretty well for being, like, a 14-year-old boy. Um, I enjoyed it a lot more this time. This is from that early 2000s, late 90s era when a lot of rom-coms and, like, sort of, like, female-centric films were based off of older texts. So you have, like... Emma was made into Clueless. 
Um, and Ten Things I Hate About You was based off of a Shakespeare play, I think, Taming the Shrew. And th- this is um, Pride, Pride and Prejudice. Prejudice. Yep. So this is a Jane Austen novel, um, and Colin Firth plays Mr. Darcy, both in the like biggest version of Pride and Prejudice that ever hit the screen, and in this, he also plays Mr. Darcy, and it's the exact same character. Which is hilarious. Yeah. It's like a meta level of humor. But of course, this is a modernized Pride and Prejudice, and Mr. Darcy's sort of like dreamboat prim and proper posh prince charming character is so well mannered that it's like a fault it's like pretty annoying yeah and basically renee zellweger as the titular british jones british jones bridget jones (laughs) uh she does not have herself together she is this sort of like gen x holdover where she's drinking her way out of like being that like slacker uh (laughs) 90s character into this new modern era where she's supposed to like be like a mid-30s office girl and can't land herself a husband which is a complaint that i kind of have with the movies that like most of what she wants to do is like land a husband and lose weight yeah which might be a holdover from the books because this is based off of a novel series as well and I think every diary entry in the novel is, like, weight, 130 pounds or whatever. I'm trying to lose weight between each entry. But I really like the idea that she's the audience surrogate. We're supposed to be around her age, growing up into our 30s. And now that we're watching it now, it's we are, 15 years later. And you can kind of identify with her struggle. Yeah, it's like we don't have our shit together. Like, we don't have, like, adult life down. But also the kind of the stuff... That you're talking about, like, oh, her wanting to lose weight or just find a husband. That stuff seems cliche when you're younger. And then as you get a little bit older, you feel that, too. We're in our 30s. Like, I'm gaining weight. It's starting to be like, oh, I should probably lose some weight. And yeah. Damn, like, am I going to get married at any point? Other married couples are looking at her like, why are you still single? And her friends aren't really helpful. No. In, in any way. But, like, besides that. I think the real draw of this movie for me, the first one, is that she represents like our inner idiot. The way that you feel awkward in public and like say you bumble like a public speech or mm-hmm. like you fall down on your face or you don't have your like clothes together the way they should be and you sort of blurt out the wrong thing at the wrong time because you don't have like proper like social grace. It's such an easy thing to identify with and she just like feels like Whenever I'm embarrassed about myself and get anxious about how I'm presenting myself, like, she's sort of, like, personifying that exact thing. One of the strongest things about the first movie is that, like, opening sequence where she's just getting wasted singing all by myself. On her 32nd birthday. On her 32nd birthday. And I feel like that perfectly encapsulates, like, her character. All that's missing is, like, a house cat. (laughs) Right. Her singing all by myself in, like, her ugly pajamas and just getting wasted. But we've been, like, everyone's been there where you, like, feeling sad or lonely and you do some kind of self-destructive thing. And then she wakes up the next morning and, like, I'm going to lose weight and start fresh. Stop smoking. Stop smoking and drinking, whatever. And then, of course, she doesn't because, like she says, she's not good at resolutions either. But, like, that's such a a human thing that I connected with with her character because, like, everyone's been there before. Yeah. And like you said, like, her shithead friends are not helping. Like, young British professionals drink a lot. (laughs) And she just sort of, like, falls in that cycle of going out with her group Mm -hmm. of buddies. One of whom is played by Shirley Henderson. I don't know if you know her, but she's, like, one of my favorite actresses that, like, just isn't featured enough. Uh, which which friend is she in? Uh, she has like a little tiny bird voice. She's like kind of oh, like... Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's really good. But, okay. This is, though, like as relatable as her character is. This is like 
a traditional rom-com setup where she has this sort of like rom-com job like she works as the publicist for a publishing company it's kind of amazing this movie wasn't made 10 years before it was because that's such like a cliche that's really cliche yeah. yeah um and she works for a hot boss played by hugh grant who's this sort of like hot shot tells it like it is like playboy um and she falls in love with him and she, he breaks her heart pretty early in the film i love that hugh grant kind of subverts the whole idea of hugh grant in the movie like he always plays a guy that is like super charming but just on the verge of being a complete douchebag and in this movie he's full douchebag he's full douchebag but still like kind of charming like the charm is there but i like that it takes his whole shtick and kind of like makes a mockery of it he would usually play the colin firth character like the prince charming has it all together right character in this he's like this chauvinist boss who like flirts with his underlings through emails like chiding her about the length of her miniskirt oh Uh, yeah did your skirt call in sick today and (laughs) those initial like flirtation scenes were really cute yeah in the first movie not even disregarding the fact that like just the idea of like email flirting being this like new thing it just felt like oh it's the 2000s we email each other now so let's have this like extended email montage of them flirting back to back i thought it was really funny and like just kind of like adorable it's like the around the same time like you've got mail come out Mm -hmm. comes out where it's like that's the central premise it's like we have email now (laughs) (laughs) but yeah so the movie is sort of like her thinking she wants to be with hugh grant and thinking that Colin Firth is kind of a cad because Hugh Grant lies about uh, certain things that Colin Firth may have done in the past. And then she discovers the full truth. It's like, oh, I'm supposed to be with this nice guy character and not this, like, hot dude I've been banging. That's one thing that I noticed watching it again. It's like, she has, like, way more chemistry with Hugh Grant. But he's bad for her. But he's really bad for her, yes. But with the Colin Firth, it's like, I guess that's his character. He's sort of flat. And just, like, even, cool... There's no conflict there. Like, it wouldn't make for a good movie if they were perfect for each other. They would just get together and that would be it. There wouldn't be two more sequels. And like you said, he just kind of drifts out of her life in and and out for the next two movies. Right, and that's sort of what makes the whole series work. That, like, recurring thing of, is he actually good for her? Like, they don't really seem compatible, but in moments he will say something nice and it seems like they are but that kind of question mark of is he really the one is sort of what sustains all three movies see i would say that bridget herself just like her navigating this modern woman persona that she's supposed to fill um i think that's what makes it compelling like as far as the two guys go i never really care with who she picks I guess Hugh Grant becomes more apparently, like, bad for her over time, Mm -hmm. but it's not like I ever want her to go with either of them. Like, I don't really care. There's a scene at the, sort of towards the climax of the first movie, where the two of them are having a boy fight in the middle of the snow. (laughs) Which is awesome. To, like, a dance remix of It's Raining Men. And just, uh, like, gets very out of hand. Yeah, like, through a restaurant. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I think... That moment is kind of exemplifying where, like, it's not that it matters which one she goes with. It's just nice that she's wanted by two people that badly. Which is sort of sad in its own I feel good for her. It's like kind of wish fulfillment. Like, oh, these two men are fighting over me. Like, it kind of, like, bumps up her ego. Yeah, it sort of seems like a female fantasy in some way to have, like, Hugh Grant and Colin Firth. Like, fighting for your affections. Mm-hmm. And then, in the third movie, throw in that Patrick Dempsey. Yeah, it's another one there. I don't really care if she ends up with him or not. Um. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're right. I think it's more about her journey as a character and less the specifics about who's right for her and who she ends up with. Yeah. I mean, like, when she says, like, 
I feel like an idiot most of the time. Or, like, when she has to give, like, a public speech for her publishing company, and she, like, accidentally, like, insults Salman Rushdie to his face. Uh, uh, I love that Salman Rushdie cameo in the first one. Like, yeah. what? Why is <laughs> he like, in this movie? You're one of the most famous modern authors. Like, why are you in Bridget Jones' diary? But She'll, like, pop up at a garden party that was supposed to be a costume party, but then they canceled, and she shows up dressed like a prostitute. And you're like, this is me. Like, I feel awkward the way she does. So, like, to have the two men fighting over her and, like, to have these, like, options open up where she starts the movie and that all by myself crying alone dirt and mm-hmm. alcohol. Like, it just feels good. It's kind of, like, fairy tale-ish. And the movie's filmed like a fairy tale, too. It has these, like, comic book angles and these, like, high crane shots where and these, like, tinkling noises on the soundtrack. Like, it feels like a magical thing is happening to her all of a sudden. And I think as the series goes along, sort of does that more and more like especially in in the second picture it goes a little mm-hmm. overboard with it but okay in the first one just before we move on like, yeah yeah i'm saying that it has like the like fairy tale like lightness to it and it feels like a rom-com but i think this was more of a sleeping with other people situation mm-hmm. the movie we just talked about where the sex stuff in this movie is kind of over the top for that genre at the time. Uh, there's a scene where her mother is selling this like egg beater machine that looks like her just jerking off this like giant cock and then it, <laughs> and then it shoots out the egg white out the front right. of it. There's another scene where she just had sex with Hugh Grant and he's like, you know, what we just did was illegal in like most countries. It's like this weird ass play joke. Like, yeah. it does have like kind of a dangerous tilt to it. And I get that the first movie, Bridget Jones's Diary, like I get the appeal of that one wholly. 100%. Right. I'm assuming that you hated the second one. Yes. I totally understand. Yet, watching it again, I somehow liked it more than the first time I watched it. The second film is the glaringly obvious, like, weak... I think it's a huge drop-off in quality, no matter what. Like, Yeah. I mean, that first one, I'd, you know, I'd give it like an A, A-, minus, and then the second one's like a C or a D. It's yeah. like, it is a big drop in quality but well, it opens with uh, our favorite character miss bridget jones leaping out of an airplane into a pile of pig shit which feels like a good encapsulation of like what the movie does to her as a character well, and it, but also that exemplifies like the recycling of mm-hmm. jokes because like in the first film there's a scene where she goes down a fire pole and the camera like catches her ass yeah coming down and then this in the second one it's the exact same thing She's parachuted down, the camera catches her ass. But it's so much more degrading to just like watch her like covered in shit. And I think that's what the second movie is basically trying to do, is take what worked in the first one and just kind of like bringing it up a few notches of like degradation and humiliation uh, and just kind of out there weirdness, but it doesn't feel the same. Well, the film is titled Bridget Jones Edge of Reason, which even the title is a fucking mess. This is from 2004. It's three years later. I think it's even worse than you're saying. It might be repeating specific gags, but in doing so, it completely misses the point of what makes Bridget Jones like a relatable, real human being. Like I said in the first movie, she's our inner idiot. Like she's mm-hmm. our like anxious inner self where like she fucks up and we see ourselves in her mistakes. 
In the second movie, Edge of Reason, she's an actual idiot. The first movie's conflict between Hugh Grant and Colin Firth is based on a lie. The second one, all the conflicts are based on her being dumb. Like, it's kind of Ebert's idiot plot situation where, like, if these characters just told each other what was going on and stopped acting like doofuses for ten seconds, there'd be no movie. They're all just misunderstandings between inhumanly stupid characters. Well, and I think Ebert... So I read his reviews for the first two movies, and I think he had a really good point about the second one, which he actually liked. He gave it three stars out of four, which I thought was kind of weird, but he says the problem with the second one is... So the first movie, Bridget Jones happens to things. Like, she'll come into some event, and she'll change it, and, like, do something to affect it, and that's where, like, the humor is. And then in the second one, things happen to her, which I think is, like kind of what you're getting at like that's the distinction i feel like like in the second one just feels like she's sort of just going along and shit's just happening there's all this weird stuff like smuggling drugs and weird tangents i don't really feel like something that she would really be getting involved it doesn't just sort of happen like it feels more like homer simpson than it feels like bridget jones like she's just like dumb and she like oh i accidentally stumbled into a skiing competition and then my skis like rode me into a pregnancy shop like it's right. just like a fucking dumb like she's not because in the first series one, of embarrassments right in the first one she gets embarrassed and humiliated a lot but you never really come away from it saying like oh she's an idiot but yeah and that's an edge of reason it, it does change a yeah. little bit and i and i do think it comes full circle in the third film they finally it comes back to where it originally started but yeah that's that second one is definitely weak and like you're saying, they do try to relive moments from the first one, which is always not a good thing. Like, they start the film with the exact same Christmas party, with the exact same, like, sweater, ugly Christmas sweater gag. Yeah, and talking about, what, the turkey curry, and so you get a lot of the same jokes. Uh, there's a repeat of the boy fight, uh, except this time it's set to the darknesses, I believe, in a thing called love. That made it feel really dated to me, because yeah. I remember when that song came out, so it put it in the specific context. 2004. I like that she still has the same group of friends, and like pretty much the exact same cast. Like I at least like the repetition of that. Um, Shirley Henderson, who I, I guess I just paid attention to more than you did, her wig is like huge in this one for some reason. Like it's like swallowing her. Um, <laughs> if you ever like watch this again, pay attention to her wig. Um, I think that's her character progression. Yeah, she gets smaller, but her hair stays. Yeah, the same. her hair just gets <laughs> bigger and bigger. But at the same time, like the first one has this sort of like charming like soundstage quality. Like when the boys are fighting in the snow outside, it looks like a fake set. Uh, this one has these, like, CGI swoops that, like, jump around the city. And, like, these these Coca-Cola ads in the middle of the movie. Yeah, that is fucking weird. Really blatant pl- ad placements. So, was it directed by the same person no. in the second film? No. Because it does feel like a different director. Yeah. So that makes sense. She is no longer cataloging her weight, which is nice. Hugh Grant starts off the movie claiming to be in Sex Addict uh, Anonymous. Right. Uh, which is another sex addiction theme for this episode. Uh, but, you know, like overall, it just does the same things but bigger, like you said earlier. Like, mm-hmm. they go on this trip to Thailand with this extended sequence that, of course, works in a stupid trans joke. That was pretty misguided. And she, like, teaches these, like, comically unintelligent Thai women in prison how to sing Madonna songs. And so this really long, overblown sequence that feels more like a Farley Brothers movie than it feels like a Bridget Jones movie. Watching it, I thought the first, uh, I don't know, 45 minutes or so was, like, passable, fine. But then once it gets into the Thailand 
stuff, it really does go off the tracks. Right. And yeah, those and some of those scenes are problematic too. Just like what? yeah, it's like cultural tourism, uh, but like feeling superior to the East. Uh, it's kind of gross. Yeah. And and like I said earlier, like the idiot plot problem of this movie really bothers me. We're like in the first one. She thinks that Mr. Darcy is a bad person because Hugh Grant lied about his character and, like, something that happened to them in their past. Mm-hmm. In this movie, she thinks he's cheating on her because she misunderstood something. Like, it's a, it's a, all a one big misunderstanding why they can't be together. She thinks that his new co-worker is trying to sleep with him. Yeah, and you're right. It's just a series of her, like, misinterpreting things. Yeah. Not, like, actually be, being given false information. Although, well, that's not t- really true because remember she has that friend of hers that tells her like oh i saw darcy with this like hot younger lady Mm -hmm. so there is someone like giving her kind of false information but she's watching them through the windows and misinterpreting their like physical language and like barging in and they're like they're actually just conducting business yeah uh, and then even the physical language she sees between them or she interprets it as flirtatious it turns out, like, oh, actually, that lady was flirting with me the whole time. And one of the big climaxes of the movie is this, like, stupid lesbian kiss that's sort of, like, forced on her at the climax. And it's just like, who is this for? Like, I can't imagine an audience where this plays well. Yeah, that is one thing. It doesn't doesn't seem to understand what made the first film work. I don't, I don't really see people that were huge into the first film that would see Edge of Reason and be like, ah, oh, yes, I feel so satisfied at the end of this because it... It's working on a, like a different level. Like I said, um, to get into the the third film in the series, which came way later. Yeah. So in the second movie was three years after the first, except that in the film's timeline, it's only six weeks difference. And you get Bridget sort of pressuring Darcy for marriage and children like six weeks into their relationship. Yeah. Which feels really weird. Maybe if it was three years, I would get it. But like six weeks feels very bizarre. She found her her man. She wants a marriage and yeah. baby and all that stuff. And then Bridget Jones' Baby is in 2016. This is the one that the trailers for me was like really dispiriting. It is a bad trailer. Yeah. So this is 12 years later and the director from the original film is back and our old Bridget's back. We go back from like actual mm-hmm. idiot back to inner idiot. And the movie starts with the exact same gag from Bridget Jones' Diary where she's singing alone to herself on her birthday. Mm-hmm. I think she's entering her 40s singing all by myself again. And then she asked the, her diary, like how in the hell did I end up here again? And even though she's distressed about ending up in that place again, like it just felt so good. It's like, yes, she's back to like herself. Right. And then she like flips on party music and like decides to celebrate instead of moping, which also feels good in its own way. And it's just like, yeah, it just feels weird to like be like, thank God she's back to like being miserable. (laughs) Yeah. Such a long like break. I don't know. I'm actually really glad they made that third one yeah kind of like put a nice like touch on the the series it's restorative like it just restores the original situation um the difference though is that instead of drinking her way out of the gen x 90s into like whatever the new millennium was uh now she's the older bridget she still doesn't give a fuck and she's still awkward as hell except that she's a little more confident about her place in the world Mm -hmm. and she makes fun of millennials for like the entirety of the movie (laughs) yeah she does they don't know who Ed Sheeran is when they go like glamping like glam camping at a music festival Um, they make fun of people's ironic beards uh, man buns brand managers like that's the film style of humor and I guess people who would have really been into the Bridget Jones movie Mm -hmm. 
uh, the first one that came out, now they can like sort of look down at like idiot youngsters who don't know anything about the world, and that's kind of what she's doing here. Which is funny. It is funny. Yeah, and I kind of get a little. I, I understand a little bit of it, except for maybe like why we needed a ten minute Ed Sheeran cameo. <laughs> I like that Ed Sheeran cameo. It's really uh, kind of out of place, but yeah, he like know, sings like... directly to the camera. They like make him take their photos because they can't take a selfie by themselves. So they need like this youngster to help them out because they're older women. <laughs> but yeah, I like I like that they embarrass themselves in front of a rock star. Uh, sort of the same way she would embarrass herself in front of Salman Rushdie. Uh, yeah, that's kind of like a lesser get as far as like a celebrity cameo goes. But... Yeah, Salman Rushdie to Ed Sheeran. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, she's like the same. She's got the same apartment from the original film. Mm-hmm. She's got the same friends. She's in the same job, except she's not in front of the camera anymore. She's in this, like, producer position, which is so much better for her, because she sucks at public speaking, like, really badly. (laughs) Yeah, that's, like, one of her main character traits. Yeah, but the thing that bothered me about the trailer and, like, the main plot of the movie is that it's, like, baby mama drama. Like, she sleeps both with Colin Firth again, who had left her in between the two films. And got married, but then divorced... And she also sleeps with Patrick Dempsey, who's this, like, American billionaire. And she meets just, at a like, a festival. perfect, supportive, kind of. Yeah, totally. He's, like, a I mean, dreamboat, I guess. He's, like, a great guy. This guy. Which is kind of refreshing to just have a character where you're just like, oh, wow, that's a really nice man. <laughs> but that kind of plays into, like, what we were talking about earlier. Like, are we supposed to care about who she ends up with? Like, both possible dads seem like pretty good, good situations. Option, especially yeah. in this one, like... Before, Hugh Grant is obviously pretty slimy. Mm-hmm. So you're like, yeah, I don't want her to end up with him. But yeah, and Bridget Jones' baby, you're just like, shit, dude. Like, you're lucky either way. Like, both of these guys are a catch. Yeah. You know? So it's almost kind of admitting to what we were talking about earlier, where like that part isn't as important as like her worldview or like the way that she like resonates with audiences about her like bumbling around. Hugh Grant is taken out of the situation pretty like drastically at the beginning of this movie. Uh, we attend his funeral in the first act. At his funeral, she gives, like, a speech. She's like, Daniel touched so many of us. And, like, <laughs> yeah. the audience in the pews is, like, all these, like, hot, hot ladies. Because yeah. uh, he's I a sex that, addict yeah. asshole. And then at the end of the movie, they leave it open-ended. Opening it for a sequel, is Daniel still alive? God. Will Hugh Grant return to this series? I would... Well, would you be down for a fourth Bridget Jones movie? Is it, like... Or should they just stop at three? Well, it's kind of a weird question, because the first one's very good. It's a very good movie. The second one completely ruins the character and, like, misinterprets the vibe and, like, trashes the first movie's good name. And the third one, with the original director, tries to redeem itself. Yeah, it, like, gets it back to, like, a really good place. I don't see the point in another one. Because the third one I thought was pleasant, but I didn't, like fall in love with it or anything like right it's, it's a pretty good rom-com and that's I what like, i thought too i like getting her perspective on like making fun of young people like i think that's funny to me yeah it's um, a good like kind of new angle i sort of feel the same way three feels good like yeah redeem the series redeemed itself i don't think bridget jones baby is like a great film by any stretch but i think it's good it's a fun enjoyable film and so it kind of gets the whole franchise back on track where you can feel pleasant about the whole experience i will say that let's say they never do make a fourth movie in that case i do like the twist ending that hugh grain is still alive because mr darcy is such like an inevitability that she's always going to end up with this guy that for her to get this like fairy tale ending 
at the end. I like that the movie picks at it a little bit. It's like, oh, actually, this other guy who she always falls for is also still alive. So it's like, oh, her life isn't fairy tale perfect at the end. There is like still a possibility that these two will break up again. And your mind can do that legwork right. without needing a fourth film. Yeah, that's what I was going to say is like, I think it's nice to leave that option open. You can kind of come up with your own sequel in your head. Like, oh, well, what if he comes back around and tries to get back with her and she's married with the kid? Like, what would happen? Like, you can imagine where a fourth film would go, but is it necessary? I don't know. I feel good about the three. Yeah. And there are a series of books. Like, I'm sure there's all kinds of information we're not getting. But Now, that's how I'm, I know... Uh, become a true fan if i start reading, reading the books I, no. I know Brittany has oh really yeah how many i do not See, know I, that. I wish she was here i wanted to know how many books there were but no matter what happens like i really do think that bringing back um sharon mcguire the director from the first one and the third one i think mm-hmm. bringing her back to sort of restore her vision was was a good choice totally and you could feel that in the sharpness of how this movie's made like the second one like i said it kind of get that feeling like who is this for like it feels like Kind of like a gross out, there's something about Mary type movie that just doesn't fit the character. It's tonally, it's not the same and it's uneven and like kind of bloated with all the best scenes are kind of like set pieces. Yeah. But the second one takes it to some other level that's like not where the original film was like grounded in. But Sharon McGuire actually has like a visual style, style to her as yeah. well. Like I was talking about the uh, like the um the crane shots from the first one where you watch everyone from above. In the third movie in Bridget Jones's Baby, there's this really beautiful scene of her walking through a wedding uh where oh, yeah. there's like kids dancing at the reception to like this like slow motion pop music mm-hmm. uh, as she like walks her way over to Mr. Darcy and then they make passionate love, which is kind of a weird scene. But I think that there's like a visual sharpness to her direction that treats it like a real movie on top of being like a cutesy rom-com and Mm -hmm. she also understands the character a lot more than uh the woman who directed the second film i believe i know i know it kind of sounds like we're wrapping up now i do want to say before we leave that having emma thompson as her gynecologist in the third movie her like natal doctor is really funny just because she plays the same profession in junior the arnold schwarzenegger (laughs) She's more I, of like a nutty professor type in that film, but I thought that was really funny to like see her back in that role here. Those are, well, actually, I'm glad you brought that up because those were some of my favorite scenes where she's like having to tell the same information to two sets of guys. And just that whole dynamic I thought was like really funny. Yeah, she's a really sharp wit in this movie, Emma Thompson. Yeah, um, I really enjoyed her role in that that last one. Would you recommend someone go past the first movie if you're like just sort of like blindly walking in? Because I think if you're only going to watch one of these like the first one's oh, kind of but, a perfect little encapsulated yeah. product it's not like it needs to be tacked on two other movies after that honestly like i would say you have to watch the first one and if you really like it then kind of go deeper into it but that the first bridget jones feels like just such a perfect encapsulation of her character and what makes her so likable and the whole series like funny so i think the first one is mandatory viewing like I said, if you want to get deeper into it, you can. I think the third one is like a good watch. Yeah, it's a fun rom com. It feels good. To, but I, yeah, really, that first one is kind of what really like set me on the path of like I gotta see all these because I really love the first one. I thought it's it's great. Yeah. So there's 39 episodes of this podcast now. Uh, we're about to have our 40th episode coming up. We're gonna do three Halloween episodes this year, hopefully three horror themed episodes in October. I don't usually ask people to do this, but 
if you could just like spread the news that the show exists, <laughs> you know, like if you listen to podcasts, you know what people beg you to do, like share it to friends, tell people about it, rate and subscribe on iTunes, people like that. Seriously. Just anything. We don't really have a lot of people listening. <laughs> we put in a lot of work. <laughs> so that'll be my last time I beg for probably another 10 episodes. But, you know, spread the news around. We're starting to get to this point where we have more episodes than listeners, which is getting kind of depressing. <laughs> uh, spread the word. Yeah, do the legwork for us. Uh, and we'll come back to you with those three Halloween episodes as soon as we can. Bye, y'all. Bye. <laughs>